Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and today we're going to be talking to NASCAR winning driver Bill Lester. The amazing and dramatic story of Bill Lester, one of the most well-known NASCAR drivers in history and a pioneer whose determination and spirit has paved the way for a new generation of racers is here with us today because you're just going to love this interview. Bill Lester has written a new book on his life in NASCAR called Winning in Reverse, which tells the story of Bill Lester, whose love for racing eventually compelled him to quit his job as a software engineer to pursue racing full-time later in life. Blessed with natural talent, Bill Lester still had a trifecta of odds against him. He was black, he was middle-aged, and he wasn't a Southerner. And everything Bill Lester did in racing, he did in reverse. The things I accomplished are not supposed to happen in sports, unless it's in a movie or a novel, and certainly not in Major League Racing. At 45 years of age, I made history by being the first black driver in 20 years to race in NASCAR's Elite Series. That weekend in Atlanta, I was one of only 43 drivers to race in the top level of NASCAR, the Cup Series, the most popular and competitive form of professional motorsports in the United States. Defying the odds, overcoming the challenges and adversity, and prevailing over cynicism and racism, I lived my dream as a professional race car driver. I competed for over 30,000 laps and eventually stood on the top step of the podium. I had made it, and for me, that was a true win. Any trophies I might win along the way would merely be icing on the cake. My road to success was in stark contrast to the career of the typical professional race car driver. Most drivers usually start by the age of 10, with some as young as five. They begin racing go-karts or quarter midgets, which are miniature open-wheel race cars designed for kids. And, if successful, they climb a racing ladder composed of faster, larger, higher horsepower cars. By their early teenage years, those who have won prestigious championships during their ascension begin to catch the eye of race team owners at the professional level. By the time they have reached their late teens or early 20s and demonstrated consistent success, they have the opportunity to begin their career as a professional driver. My career did not follow this path, not even close. I did not race go-karts as a kid nor did I compete in any officially sanctioned wheel-to-wheel competition as a team. Unlike my future competitors, when I was in my 20s, I worked as a computer scientist in Silicon Valley at Hewlett-Packard in order to fund my desire to race. I did not become a professional race car driver until my fourth decade, and ironically, my last competitive racing came in karting in my 50s. My racing career unfolded in almost the exact opposite way of a usual one, in reverse. That, of course, is our guest today, author Bill Lester, reading from his new book, Winning in Reverse. And in our conversation today with Bill Lester, we talk about how he rose above it all, as did his rankings, and how Bill Lester made history time and time again, even as a later, older adult, becoming 
the very first African-American to race in NASCAR's Bush Series, the first African-American to participate in the Nextel Cup, and the first to win a pole position start in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. This is just a great story about someone who did all of this later in life. Our Not Old Better Show audience is just going to love this story. Whether you're contemplating a late-in-life change, a career or lifestyle change, challenging social norms, or struggling against prejudice or bigotry, Winning in Reverse is a story for sports fans and readers everywhere about the power of perseverance in the face of adversity. You'll love Bill Lester's story of determination and perseverance It is our feature Black History Month moment on the Not Old Better Show. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, NASCAR winning driver and author of the new book, Winning in Reverse, Bill Lester. Bill Lester, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to talk to you. And let me just start by saying, hope you're well, hope your family's well. Everybody's dealing with the vagaries of the vaccine and uh, COVID and Omicron. And uh, most importantly, though, I hope hope you and your family are all doing doing well today. Well, I appreciate that. Everybody is doing well. We're staying safe. But you're right. It's not business as usual these days, is it? It isn't. It isn't. But it's exciting to talk to you. I think you've got this wonderful story. I really am excited about getting into it. Uh, the name of the, your new book, of course, is Winning in Reverse. I love that title. And I want to, I want to, you've been so kind to read to our audience a section of the book. And I want to read to you a quote. I'm, I'm sure you know this. It's a quote. It's on the, it's on the book jacket. It's from Roland Martin, the host of the Daily Digital Show. And Roland Martin says of the book, Bill Lester's story is instructive for any person at any age to understand that when we have a deeply embedded passion, it is never too late to make it come to fruition. I strongly believe there are many people in this world who have been waiting for this book at this moment in their lives. I, Pick that quote because I just think it's especially relevant to our over age 60 audience. And so what does the title Winning in Reverse mean to you? And what do you think it might mean to our over age 60 audience? A lot of great story here to tell to to uh, my community. <laughs> well, you know, I think basically in a nutshell with Winning in Reverse, it, it basically encapsulates my story of being, you know, an atypical um, career. And it's a career that was built on passion. You know, I mean, that's really what it comes down to for anybody to, I believe, um, reach their goals and be successful, whatever their definition of success might be. You know, for me, my definition of success was happiness. I was not happy in a career that everybody thought I should be happy and successful in, which was the high tech industry. I wanted to be a race car driver from a very, very young age, from the first time my father took me to a race when I was just shy of eight years old. And he did so because he knew I loved, you know, cars and speed and watching racing as a kid. And he took me there and that set the hook. You know, I I found out that I loved it and I grew to have a passion for racing. And it just took a very long time for me to really realize my passion. I mean, by the time I was a professional at 40 years of age, just starting out my career, most professional race car drivers and athletes in general are done with their profession. And so I, mine was just starting out and I was able to, to race till I was 50 years old. And so it was really just a matter of, you know, knowing what it is you want to do with your life, not taking no for an answer, realizing that if it's going to be something that's worthwhile, it's going to be hard. There are going to be challenges, 
They're going to be things that you're going to have to, you know, just put your nose to the grindstone and realize that if it's something you really, really want to do, and that's what I mean by passion, then you can achieve it. When I knew I had a passion, I knew it because racing was the first thing I thought about when I got up in the morning and the last thing I thought about before I went to bed. You know, even when I was working in the high tech sector and, you know, making a six figure income, it wasn't fulfilling to me. It's not what I wanted to do. Racing was the ticket for me. And no matter who it is that, you know, I'm talking to or that is listening, you know, you can do what it is in your life if you have that passion and, and, and can and basically push yourself to, get, to reach those goals. That's what it's really all about. I could have easily given up so many times. I was discouraged along the way. You know, people say, you know, you guys don't race. You know, as a black man, they're like, you guys don't race. I'm like, well, you know, maybe that's what you think, but I'm going to be a race car driver. And, you know, anybody, I don't know what it is, or, or I, I don't even care what it is, but if you have that belief and passion in yourself, you can do it no matter what your age. How do you think your later in life start helped you in racing? Well, you know, I would say the thing that benefited me from becoming a professional later in life is that I had so many life experiences in terms of how to deal and communicate with people. You know, when I came from the West Coast, from Northern California, the Bay Area specifically, to the Deep South to race in NASCAR, you know, the Bible Belt and all that kind of stuff, I was truly a fish out of water. You know, I, I didn't look like most of the people in racing by any means, a stretch of the imagination, and I definitely didn't sound like them. I don't have a Southern drawl or an accent. And so when I came there, you know, they were calling me Yankee and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, Yankee, you must be kidding me. But again, you know, I was so different in a racing environment, in a NASCAR environment. You know, they didn't know who I was. I was like the California kid. And so having the experiences that I had as a research and development project manager and dealing with lots of different personalities and ways that people think about things, I knew that I was somebody that they may not necessarily feel comfortable with. And so it was, you know, it's incumbent upon me to make them feel at ease. And so I use a lot of the techniques that, you know, I had learned at HP in terms of mm. dealing and, and communicating with people, you know, one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. as well as in groups and getting people to, you know, believe in what your passion and desire is and to understand, you know, their background and how they're wired and what they think about and, you know, just building a team, you know, that's really what racing is. It's a team sport. Most people think it's just the driver behind the wheel, but it is a team. No driver, I don't care how good you are, will be successful without that team providing you everything you need to be successful. In other words, they're the ones nutting and bolting the cars together and building them and crewing them and servicing them when they, you come in for a pit stop, you know, four tires and fuel in 12, 15 seconds. They're the ones doing that. You know, I'm just the loose nut behind the wheel. So I had to make sure that everybody was comfortable with me and we were all pulling in the same direction to be successful. So my getting this, you know, start later in life as far as racing is concerned with my, you know, um, skills and techniques that I had learned along the way with dealing with lots of different personalities helped me there. But if you were to ask me, you know, would I probably have gone further along had I started earlier? I would answer unequivocally yes. I mean, if I was racing in my single-digit years as opposed to coming out of the box as late as I did, I would have had, you know, a much greater success because I would have had that much more experience behind the wheel. There's nothing, you know, that can take the place of experience. And so I was really learning at the deep end, you know, 
on a very, very <laughs> fast track approach to being a professional race car driver because it happened so late for me. Well, again, the book's title is Winning in Reverse. We're with Bill Lester. The book is excellent. I, I have to tell you, Bill Lester, I loved the glossary of the, um, it's right up front in the book too, all the terms. Uh, you talk about race car performance, you talk about driving, uh, there's terms like rim riding, just some great stuff. And then I also loved, and I, got, I just got to tell you, I, I, I just always think it's great when authors add pictures. And I love the pictures in the book too. There's one in particular that just kind of makes me smile even as I look at it and think about it. It's you and your mom. And you're driving, you're, it's after a victory, you're doing a lap together, your mom's got her, I think it's her hand that's holding the flag, the victory flag as you guys are driving around. But you and your mom have kind of an interesting racing experience together even prior to that. And I wonder if you just tell us that story really quick, because it's a, it's a great story about you and your mom, but, uh, but I love that picture and, and, I, and I love all those pictures too. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, that was a real special event that took place when I won mm-hmm. that race. That was my first race mm-hmm. victory and it was on Mother's Day. And so <laughs> both my parents were there. My sister was there. Um, they were all just, you know, elated. I was, you know, just beyond measure with excitement and, and pleasure and happiness. But one of the things that takes place in amateur racing is that after you win, you know, you cross the, the, the you know, the start finish line under the checkered flag, you come around during that lap and then you pick up the checkered flag from the start from the uh, flagman and you get to take a victory lap. And so <laughs> my mother made it very clear that she was going to be taking that victory <laughs> lap with me since it was Mother's Day. And so, I mean, it, yeah, yeah. we were crying like babies when we took that lap. So mm-hmm. it'll always be, you know, just indelible in my heart. Um, but I think the story you're talking about is when I first came home from SCCA, which is Sports Car Club of America, racing school. And one of the things that is a prerequisite to being in Sports Car Club of America and being a race car driver is you have to have the requisite safety equipment. And one of the obviously most important things is having a helmet, right? So on that helmet, you need to have your name, your date of birth, and your blood type on the back of it. So that if, heaven forbid, you get in an accident or something goes wrong, the paramedics or, you know, the emergency personnel will know what your name is, they'll know how old you are, and they'll know what your blood type is in case something, you know, takes place that requires a transfusion or whatever the case is. And so when I brought my helmet home (laughs) to my mother and she saw it, and she saw all this information on the back of the helmet, especially (laughs) my blood type, she freaked out. So it was quite something else. I said, Mom, don't worry about it. I'm not planning to lose any blood, but, I mean, it is something that is required but she, the look on her face and her expression, it was priceless. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, the the book is special. And, and just this dramatic rise that you had in, in the Cup Series in particular, because that's a, a, a special part of racing. It's on Sundays. Uh, for you as a black driver, it was, it was unique. And I think we all really want to be appreciated for our for our skills, not just the color of our skin. And I think many in our audience will remember, you know, some of these wonderful black drivers, Wendell Scott in the 60s, Willie T. Ribs in the 80s. Uh, you know, now there's Daryl Wallace, Bubba Wallace. He's quoted on the cover of your book today. What what does it mean to you to be among such a select few? Um, and and I wonder, do you, do you see now more opportunities uh, for people of color in, in car racing today? Yeah, so... 
you know, I am definitely one of a select few, but I never got into racing yeah. from that perspective. I, I didn't care about the color mm-hmm. of my skin. I knew I was different. I knew mm-hmm. I was unique. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a race car driver, you just want to beat the next guy. You know, you want to be whoever <laughs> is out there competing against you. That's what it was about for me. You know, the fact that, you know, I'm African-American and, and what that means, that was all brought to my attention typically by the media by fans, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they would say things like, you know, the media in particular. So what's it like to, you know, be a black race car driver? And I'm like, well, <laughs> hard question for me to answer because, answer because I've been black all my life. But, you know, in terms of being a, a race car driver, I love it, you know. And I would tell them that, you know, I, I don't want to be known as a black race car driver. I want to be known as a race car driver who happened to be black. That's all there is to it, you know. I mean, I, I didn't put my ethnicity, my race up there on a pedestal, you know, that was something that was made clear to me time and time again, that, you know, I, 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 I'm the type of guy who comes through racing, you know, once in a blue moon, it's almost like there's every 20 years, there's a black driver that's able to ascend to the top level of professional racing in our country, which is NASCAR cup series racing. I can tell you that from the inception of NASCAR, which is 1948 until now, which is over 70 years ago, there have only been eight black drivers to get to the top level. I mean, it's very difficult. Um, there are so many aspiring drivers and so few opportunities to be behind the wheel. We only start now 40 cars on Sunday before it used to be 43, but NASCAR changed the uh, rules. And now it's a 40 car full field as opposed to a 43 car full field. So if you think about it, that's, 40 slots, 40 seats for all the drivers across the country and even across the world. There are folks from Europe that want to come and race in NASCAR. So if you think about how selective, how difficult it is for you to be one of those 40, you can appreciate, you know, just what it is that I was able to accomplish. So in answer to your next question about, you know, is there opportunity for more? Will basically the tide start to change? I can only hope so. NASCAR has put a lot of measures in place and has basically um, opened the door in terms of making the sport more inclusive, to make it more welcoming to everybody. They have banned the Confederate flag, which is something that I didn't think I was going to see in my lifetime, because trust me when I tell you, in the mid-2000s when I was racing, you know, hot and heavy professionally on a consistent basis in NASCAR, that um, request would have fallen on deaf ears from NASCAR. There would have been no way. This is what we do. This is our heritage. This is, you know, this, that, and the other. But, you know, fortunately, with what has happened in the recent history, recent times, with, you know, the events that have taken in the taken place in the black community, like, you know, um, Trayvon Martin and, you know, just, um, look, George Floyd, Amada Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, um, ears have opened up eyes have opened up and there has been some more receptance to, okay, we need to change this landscape. And so as a result of that, there are some opportunities that are creating themselves for drivers of color, as well as drivers of uh, different gender for more women to get in the sport, you know? So NASCAR definitely wants to be more reflective of the hue and, you know, um, um, gender diversity that we have in our, in our country. So I, I commend them for that. I'm optimistic that, you know, we won't be talking about, you know, Hey, just black drivers or 
female drivers. We'll just be talking about drivers. That's when NASCAR will have been successful. And racism really isn't just confined to NASCAR. I mean, we're really on the heels even today of, of you know, race and sports is very much in the news with uh, uh, the NFL, Coach Brian Flores and, and his discussion of head coaching opportunities. Do you think that we're learning in 2022 now about how to have these conversations? Are we going to be able to make some of these steps? And is there a kind of a formal process? Because NASCAR is different than some of the other major sports in, in that regard. Yeah, there's no question about that. You know, NASCAR is independently owned by the France family. It's, it's not a, a league in terms of having, you know, um, a board of directors that, or shareholders, I should say that, uh, you know, um, or basically a, a player's union or anything like that. You know, I mean, NASCAR is kind of the wild, wild west. But, you know, having said that, I, I do believe that the conversations, oftentimes a while they are, are, they are uncomfortable, um, they're being had. And, and that's always a step in the right direction. If there's communication, you know, and, and the opportunity for folks to be receptive to different ideas and philosophies and change, then progress can be made. So that's what I believe is taking place now is that the conversations are being held and that uh, people are understanding what it's like to live in other people's shoes as opposed to it just being my way or the highway. So as a result of that, if there's communication, then I believe progress can be made. And you talk in the book about tracks like Talladega and Alabama and Martinsville, Virginia, Darlington, South Carolina, and these are really deep South redneck country, Confederate flag flying areas. And I'm sure you didn't feel embraced by the fans, even during driver introductions, you make a reference to that. How did you feel at the time, you know, in dealing with some of that? Because there was even use of the N word and some really deplorable stuff. You know, it, it, it's one thing to confront this personally, but as a professional, as a, as a driver out on a track, did it do anything to dampen your competitiveness? No, it did nothing to dampen my competitiveness. It's just, you know, I thought it was a shame that, you know, in this day and age, even back then in the mid 2000s, you know, I'm not talking about now because I'm not racing competitively on the circuit now, but even back in the, you know, in the mid 2000s, I was saying, my gosh, you know, why do folks still have this mentality about, you know, it's just got to be, you know, (laughs) the way it's been historically, you know, why can't somebody come in from a different background, you know, different race, a different gender without, you know, getting, you know, all this, you know, vitriol and all that sort of thing. It it was very disheartening for me to be booed during driver introductions for no reason whatsoever. You know, I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? You know, but I I realized that um, these are um, folks that have been used to it being a certain way for so long that it becomes ingrained in them. And, you know, I just realized that that's their culture and I try not to hold that against them, you know, but I'm no, you know, person who's out here trying to um, say that I'm better than you. I am just a competitor. I'm just a race car driver, you know, treat me with the respect that I deserve by being out here, you know, um, demonstrating my craft you know, entertaining you. Cause that's what racing is. It's entertainment. You know, I'm not a rocket scientist or, you know, a brain surgeon. It's just entertainment, but you know, I'm out here just like all the rest of these guys and women, and we're just doing the best we can with the craft that we have to entertain you. Appreciate that, you know? So for them to boo me and for me to hear the N word and for some of these things to take place, 
you know, it was disappointing for me to hear that and to experience it. But believe me, it did not. Uh, it just made me hungrier <laughs> when I was out there behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. We're with Bill Lester. Bill Lester is author of the new book, Winning in Reverse. The book is excellent, and I really want to recommend it highly. We're going to put links up where our audience can find out more about Bill Lester, in particular his new book, Winning in Reverse. Again, I'm going to talk about the pictures, Bill Lester, because I, I just love it, and I think the the book is absolutely worth getting for so much, but those these pictures are just great. And there's this one of you just smiling broadly next to a Honey Nut Cheerios box. <laughs> and my audience may be interested to hear, you know, why a Honey Nut Cheerios box, but but raising money is crucial to you in uh, in the world of auto racing. So how much does it cost to race a car competitively? And how did you raise that money? I suspect that uh, we're going to hear a, a little bit about Honey Nut Cheerios, but that was that was part of it. Huh? You had to really be mindful of some of these sponsors, sponsor relations, and constantly kind of generating some income for yourself and your team. Yeah, it's unbelievable, you know, the paradigm that takes place in racing. You know, my wife, who has an MBA from Stanford, who's the real brains in our family, she said, this business model makes no sense. How is it that the athlete is responsible for bringing sponsorship? <laughs> well, the reason is because, and most people don't realize just how expensive NASCAR Cup Series racing is, but it's about a 20 to $25 million per year per car sponsorship commitment. In other words, it takes that amount of money to put one car, you know, one car, one team on the racetrack for a season. I mean, it's an insane amount of money. And people go, well, how can you spend that much money? But, you know, listen, <laughs> the number of engineers that you have to employ, the technology that you have to uh, utilize, the travel, the, the, um, the uh, lodging, the salaries. I mean, just the fact that they're automobiles and you're, you're talking race cars and we're talking not just one or two, but race teams have a stable. Each race team has a stable of race cars in their fleet, you know, maybe five, seven race cars that are in a uh, continual rotation going to each track um, during the season. And all of that just adds up to cubic dollars. And it's crazy because the athlete, the race car driver is just as responsible, if not more so than the team owner to bring that sponsorship, to bring that operating capital. And so I didn't believe it when I was told early on in my career that professional racing, like a lot of sports, is politics first, business second, and sport third. And your listeners are probably going, what does that mean? Well, the politics of the sport means that unless you are born with a complete silver spoon in your mouth, which a lot of these drivers that are on the circuit competing now are, but if you're not, you have to bring that sponsorship. And so the politics of it are that you need to be in the room where you can be exposed to those that might be in a position to support your racing endeavor. So in other words, you know, you got to press the flesh, you got to shake the hands, you got to kiss the babies, you got to meet, you know, with certain potential sponsors or people that have relationships with, you know, uh, corporations, you know, you got to basically work the Rolodex so you can get in front of these, you know, CMOs, chief marketing officers, vice presidents of marketing, CEOs. Those are the sort of people in these corporations that can sponsor you. So that's the politics is getting in the room. 
The business aspect of it is, okay, now you're in the room. How are you going to justify $20 million of a marketing spend, major mainstream sports marketing spend over anything else that a company can do? You know, they can go pro beach volleyball. They can go NBA, NFL. They can go extreme sports. Why racing? Why NASCAR? You have to have a business proposition for that sponsor that basically says, this is what you're going to get in return for your $20 million spend. That's the business of it. And if you're fortunate enough to convince them that this makes sense, then there's the actual sport part of racing. You get to put your helmet on and do what it is you want to do. I thought when I first started out that the hard part was the racing. The, the easy part is the racing. The hard part is getting behind the wheel. And you have this really interesting way of putting it in the book. You say that you have to be doubly ready to compete. Then when you got your chance, you had to just seize it with your talent. I just, I think that's such a great way to live. It's this wonderful example for our audience. I wonder if you just give us an example from the book when you did just that and uh, when you shone above everybody else out there on the track. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no question. When, when your time, your opportunity presents itself, you got to perform. And, and for somebody like me who had all eyes on them, you know, it's almost the old adage in, you know, in, in my community where you have to be twice as good. And so when I was there in the truck series in NASCAR, which is a stepping stone to cup, um, early on in my career, you know, I had to prove that I, that I belong there. And so, um, I became the first black driver to earn a whole position start at Charlotte Motor Speedway in North Carolina in 2003. And when I talk about pole position, the pole position is what you are trying to shoot for when you are qualifying to determine your starting position in the race. So typically qualifying takes place on a Saturday before the race on Sunday. So in other words, how is your starting position determined? You have to qualify for it. And so I wound up being the fastest qualifier for that race the next day. And so, again, you know, my number was called. I was, you know, given the opportunity. I had to perform, and I put it on pole. Well, Bill Lester, last question for you. You, you, you talk about this. You, you had this great career as a software engineer and a te- technology professional at HP. And, and that motivation, how do we take that in later life and maybe maybe end with this personal advice that you have for our audience about how to kind of stay motivated later in life if you're making some of these changes? You, you know, in terms of staying motivated later in life, just circles back to passion. You, you got to, you know identify what it is you love to do. Because if you love to do something, then you'll be motivated to continue to do it. You know, it's, if you find your calling, if you find what it is that, like I said, just makes you smile, makes you come to life, makes you want to just, you know, jump out of bed, you know, that's what it is that gets you to where you need to go. You know, that's really what it comes down to. I, I always, it seems in my life, have chosen the path of, you know, uh, the most resistance, you know, I mean, the, 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 the least, the one least traveled, right? I mean, I didn't have a lot of role models that I could look up to, you know, blacks and racing was an anomaly, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, my parents were like, my gosh, you know, it's so hard for you to do it. We don't come from that kind of wealth. You know, we don't have that access to the racing community, which is something that, you know, will give you a huge leg up if you know who the racing teams were and the principals and the racing teams and could open those doors for you. We, my parents knew nothing about racing and they were like, son, are you sure this is what you want to do? 
And I was like, yeah, absolutely. This is what I want to do. This is why I'm here. This is why I was given God-given gifts that can't be taught. You know, I was never formally trained as a race car driver. I, I just had that it factor. So I knew this is what I had to do. But it was difficult, and my parents hated to see me struggle, although they were very supportive, you know. They were saying, you know, you can do it. You can do it. And I'm sure probably deep down they were hoping I could because I spent all of my waking time and free time trying to make this dream of mine a reality. And then when I got married, you know, my wife, Cheryl, she said, you know, she knew I was having a hard time trying to get to where I needed to go. And she said one day, she said, look, hon, you're not getting any younger. You're not getting any easier to live with. Make this dream a reality or say that you gave it your best shot and it wasn't meant for you. And what she was saying there is she supported me in taking a leave of absence from my full-time job at HP, where I was successful by everybody else's definition but my own, to pursue racing full-time. We had a plan. We gave ourselves three years for me to make this racing career come to fruition, or I would have had to go back to the high-tech industry. Thank goodness it came together, and it came together at the last minute. I was almost looking to go right back into the high-tech sector when I got an opportunity with a race team, and as they say, the rest is history. But, you know, again, it was almost like pushing water uphill, but I knew at the end of the day, nothing made me feel as alive, as, you know, fulfilled as racing cars. So I'm glad I just never took no for an answer and never gave up. Congratulations on everything again my hats off to you on, on a wonderful career, but the book, Winning in Reverse, is excellent. Bill Lester's been our guest. 30,000 laps. That is quite an accomplishment, <laughs> Bill Lester. I just want to, I just want to congratulate you again and just say to our audience, you know, whether you're com- contemplating, you know, a late in life, uh, age related change, uh, a career change, perhaps struggling against prejudice or bigotry, this book is wonderful. Again, the title is Winning in Reverse. Bill Lester's been our guest. So great to talk to you, Bill Lester. Congrats on everything. Be well. And uh, gosh, come back and and talk to us again. I I just think this is such motivational, inspiring stuff. But thank you so much for your time today. It's been my pleasure, Paul. I've enjoyed it. My thanks to Bill Lester, author of the new book, Winning in Reverse. Bill Lester and his new book, Winning in Reverse, have links in our show notes today. So please check it out. My thanks, of course, to you, my dear Dot Old Better Show audience. For your company today, I hope you'll join me next time. Again, be safe, be healthy, and please practice smart social distancing. And remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.